Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So Pepper and Ann are going to read to you from Mark chapter 12. I want you to, to be familiar with specific folks here, and Pepper and Ann are some of them because they serve on our elder team so I wanted to make sure that you are aware of who they were. Um, so they're going to read to you from Mark chapter 12. And he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. I want you to take a deep breath. Let out a little sigh of relief, because I'm not going to badger you today and just give you a very long talk about your money uh, and putting some heavy weight or pressure on you to give more. I just thank you for your generosity. We will talk about money because I think as we journey through Mark's gospel and land at this story, the story really is talking about more than just money. I think it goes much deeper than money. So our story today presents really a contrast that addresses the heart more than it does the wallet. So yes, we'll mention uh, money and generosity for a part of our discussion, but that will not be the emphasis of our discussion because I think Jesus is really trying to stage something that's bigger and much deeper than just that. Um, But before we jump forward into that, I just want to speak, because this passage addressing a widow, I want to speak directly to the the folks in our church who are widows and even widowers. The story creates an opportunity for us to take a moment and just to honor you and and to say to you that we're so very thankful that you're a part of this church and this ministry. And and this passage gives us the opportunity just to slow down and tell you that to us, you're so very precious and you being here is so special. But for me also to point out to you that the story here shows you just how precious and special and aware of you God is because while all of this commotion is happening on the Temple Mount, Jesus is aware of just one widow that seemingly no one else has noticed. You're precious to God. And I would say as the pastor here of a multi-generational church, that's such a special thing, but it's really an honor for us, for those of you who are widows and widowers, that you'd let this be a part of God giving you the gift of a family again. So thank you that you'd be with us. You're special to us, and the story tells me, again, very loudly and very clearly, that you're very, very precious to God. So thank you that you'd be with us. Okay, now back in our story, though, we find the little vignette uh, that we've reached as we're walking through Mark's gospel. We find it right on the heels of Jesus answering the question, the greatest question of all, and that's the question of greatest commandment. Remember where they asked, what's the essence of Christianity? If you summarize the whole thing, if you boil it down to a core thing, what is it? And Jesus, remember, he responded in saying that it was love. In fact, in verse 30, he says, 
The essence of Christianity, it's love for God, loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in verse 31 of Mark chapter 12, and that you'd love your neighbor as yourself. He said that the essence of Christianity is love in response to God and his love for you. And it's love that then is directed towards God and others around you. It's true that you can't really say that you love God if you're unwilling to love your neighbor in the way that he has loved you. But it's equally true that it's, you're going to find that it's impossible to truly love your neighbor as you love yourself unless you are still constantly receiving them the wonderful love that God has given to us. If you stop receiving that kind of precious, powerful love, consistently experiencing its transforming power, then I think it becomes impossible to love people the way that Jesus is calling us to love them. And what we find in the next passage, which is where we land today, is an example of what it looks like for a person to do this, for a person to love God and love people. And there's two contrasting stories. You just heard them read to you. There's the respected religious elite. They're enjoying and even flaunting their wealth and their comfort. And then there's a widow with no outward sign of God's blessing or favor at all. From the outside, people would look and say, one of these two groups is doing it right. And look at all their external circumstances as proof of that, the fact that they're doing it right. Because look at their comfort. Look at their wealth. And, and from the outside, the, the, the people would look and say, but the other, this widow, must be failing because look at their circumstances. Where is God's blessing in their life? They must be failing in some way, shape, or form. The two stories, though, what they do when you look at them together is that they present empty religion in contrast to what Jesus was really after. Really, our message today is about empty religion versus gospel transformation. Empty religion versus the powerful work of God at, at work in the lives of his people. You see, in our story, Jesus will warn that it's very different than the way that the world is seen, that he warns that the religious leaders and all of their comfort and opulence, that they're the ones that were in danger. In fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that it's not just the scribes that Jesus goes after, but it's the scribes and the Pharisees that are in Jesus' crosshairs in this moment, and that Jesus in Matthew's gospel gives a series of seven woes or seven warnings to them, where Mark records instead Jesus taking issue with some specific things. Look down at your Bible again, beginning in verse 38, where it says, these people, these scribes, beware of them because they desire to go around in their long robes. The issue is these long flowing robes that historians tell us were white, that as they walked around the Temple Mount, remember right now it's, it's Passover season, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people flooding in and out of the city. All of them have been pilgrims on trips from distant places back to the city of Jerusalem to observe the Passover ceremony and, and the feast that's involved with it. And, and they look like people who have traveled from afar, but then in stark contrast in their long flowing white robes, they're long because it's showing you that these people are above manual labor. We're not rolling up our sleeves for anything. It's a way for them to show their comfort and ease of life. They're the clean ones, is what they're showing the people who have come. It's not just their long robes in verse 38 at the end of it. He says they love their greetings in the marketplace. They'd come to expect this, to, to, to be greeted with respect and admiration. In fact, historians tell us as they'd walk through the public square that people would quickly stand up and greet them. Oh, rabbi, oh, priest. 
No one would remain seated. And so you'd picture them walking through a crowded place and it looked as if they're parting the sea as people would stand and rise and move out of their way. They became accustomed to it. They even began to expect it. It's something that in their hearts, they believe that they had earned the right for it. In verse 39, he says, what they do is they enjoy the best seats in the synagogue and the best places at the feast. In the synagogues, most people just sat on the floor, but there is a seat behind the lectern where the scribe would, or where the scroll would be laid out as someone would teach. There was a seat behind it, and that's where these religious leaders would sit. They were above the people in comfort, looking out and down at the people. He's saying they love that visibility, they love to be separate from you, and they love the best seats in the feast. The best seat in the feast is at the head of the table. It's next to the host, not down at the foot of the table. No, that would be beneath them. They need to be seen and admired is what Jesus is telling you. These are the priests, the servants that God had asked, remember, to steward, remember his vineyard, the imagery he had previously used in chapter 12. And instead, they're not functioning as stewards who are meant to tend for the, the thing that God has entrusted to them, the nation of Israel and the hearts of the people. Instead, they're acting like owners, demanding what they can get from it. It's so twisted. And he says, even in verse 40, showing you just how twisted, he says, these people have devoured widows' houses. The imagery is gnarly. I've never seen someone eat a home before. I'm sure when he said it, people were like, come on, what? Like, there's no Godzilla movies back then where people are literally watching something eat a home. But the imagery is brutal, isn't it? It's a scathing rebuke. That rather than serving the ones that God had entrusted them to serve, the most vulnerable, Instead, they're looking to exploit their situation and take advantage of them. You remember in the New Testament, in the book of James, it says that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their time of need and keep oneself unspotted from the world. That the thing that God desires us to do is to be drawn to people who are in need and marginalized. They were drawn to them in order to take advantage of their situation. And Jesus is calling them out publicly for it because it's so twisted. He says in verse 40, for pretense... For appearances, they make long public prayers in order to keep up appearances of superior spirituality with, with this public display of piety. We picture them arms outstretched, voice nice and loud, crying out in an eloquent way, praying so that everyone around them can see just how religious and spiritual they are. Oh, from the outside, the religious leaders, they appear to be nailing it knocking it out of the park. I mean, look at them. They look the part. They disdain the world. And God's blessing seems to be on them because they're rich and they're comfortable. But Jesus warns to look out for them and their empty religion, to guard your own heart from it, from the trap that they've fallen into. And this is neither the first time nor the only time that Jesus will give a warning like this about these people. Hear me say this, the scriptures are really clear that you and I have an enemy, and maybe his goal isn't merely to make those who we'd classify as morally neutral people, maybe his goal is not just to push them into the category of bad people, so much as maybe his goal is to make those that we'd classify as morally upright, those who are good in their own eyes, maybe his goal is to make them self-righteous. Because really think about it, if his aim is at the church and he successfully makes us religious without repentance, if he leaves us self-righteous without a savior, then he's left the whole world lost in darkness. 
Because the whole world would either be lost in the darkness of their own wickedness or, hear me, in the darkness of their own self-righteousness. Either way, either way, a Savior hangs on Calvary's tree for nothing and no one, if that's the case. There's a danger here that Jesus is warning of. There's an author and speaker that I, I just recently heard him say it quite eloquently. He said it this way. He says, Christianity is the only faith in the world that says that you need to repent of doing good things for the wrong reasons. You need to repent of your empty religion. You see, you and I, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to be willing to repent of our wickedness, but even our own self-perceived self-righteousness. That that's what we need to be willing to repent of. Because the danger really is for many in the American 21st century evangelical church, and I'm not going to beat this to death, but just hear me. For many of us, we'd be willing to speak against our culture's loose morals sexually, or we'd stand up to march for the unborn. We'd plant the sign in our front lawns for the sanctity of marriage. All the while, our own self-righteousness shields us from the Savior who loves us because we don't need a Savior to save us. What we need is a Savior to intervene to rescue the good world that we're building from those people out there who are ruining our good world. Do you see how subtle that is and how distorted and twisted it is? You thought it was bad just for these people to be devouring widows' houses, but the same world that Jesus has commissioned us to love, we're standing up and saying, won't you rescue the world from those people? While we're so self-righteous that we're the ones who are turning the world away from the church. You see, religious moralism may be more dangerous than the world's hedonism because one is outward and clearly seen by all while the other is internal and easily concealed and it's so hard to self-diagnose it. It's so hard to see it inside myself. You see, cultural Christianity is a denomination of moralism, isn't it? It's a works-based religion where God grades on the curve. The gospel of Jesus is so different from that. It, it, it's terribly offensive to the moralist. The gospel of Jesus is because it tells you that you're so deeply broken that you cannot save yourself. That's what the gospel tells me. It's so very offensive to the moralist, but it's so beautiful in that it not only tells me that I'm far worse than I'd imagined, but also that I'm simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. That's the gospel. But to the moralist, it's just an offense. It's not good news. You see, Jesus' teachings are meant to shatter the self-righteous hearts that alienate us from God because Jesus' teachings, what they accomplished is that they leveled the playing field, making all of us in desperate need of a Savior. And he's doing that again in the contrast of these two stories. He's leveling the playing field where people are looking from the outside and going, look at those people. Look, at they've got it all figured out and God's blessing surely is on them. And then they overlook completely a woman on whose God's favor actually resides. My friends, don't sign up for moralism, for empty religion. It's good for show. It can look good on the outside, but it leaves you weary and empty and without a savior. It's dangerous. We can turn our Christian experience into the same rat race environment that we are subject to and tortured by in every area other, or every other area of our life. It's soul crushing to live your life constantly concerned about other people's perception of you, of trying your best to earn and deserve the admiration of other people. Everything you do, it's for show to make noise, to turn heads, to earn place and recognition. 
leaves you and I unable to ever relax for a moment because there's a crushing weight of pressure that we carry constantly. It leaves us unable to rejoice with others because the truth is we resent their success. It leaves us unable to ever be human with others because we have to keep up appearances. We drag this rat race experience in in a broken world into even our faith and relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we have to just stop and remember the simple things that every other religion, yes, is trying to get a distant God to notice you at any and all costs, but the Christian narrative is that God left heaven to draw near to you. He came to us to suffer with us and for us. We're not trying to get a distant God to notice us. He came here and put himself out there on a cross for us. You see, the essence of every other religion is simply advice, whereas Christianity, the very essence of it is news. Not a list of requirements of what you have to do to reach and to please God. No, it's news of what God has done for you. And there is a massive difference between news and advice. One creates pressure in your life. One is freeing. But there's something inside me that I don't know why it does this, but seems naturally determined to turn the gospel into good advice, to make it requirement versus news. And I don't know personally if that's because of pride in my own heart that I want to earn it, that I want to feel as if I've earned it so that I can feel good about myself, or I don't know if it's rooted in fear, me knowing that I haven't earned it and I don't deserve it. But either way, I distort and twist the gospel so easily. And what I love in the story is that Jesus is bringing that to the surface. He's contrasting these stories and the way that he uses them to show us another way here, a way out from under all that pressure, a a way to step aside from all that exhausts us about life and the rat race, and it's all about your heart. See, there's a contrast here between the upper echelon in the broken religious system and this widow who's on the lowest rung in society, and as such, she's viewed as maybe the least important and simultaneously absolutely the most vulnerable of people, and yet Jesus affirms her for doing it right. What we find in contrast between the widow and the religious elite, and Miss Ruth, you can throw it up on the screen, is that what you find in contrast is vulnerability in place of their pretense. What you find in contrast is humility in place of their pride. What you find in contrast in her versus them is generosity in place of greed. What you find in place of of her faith is is their control. What we find is her self-sacrificial love in place of their self-centeredness. I think the story for us presents a beautiful glimpse of what the gospel does in someone's life, what someone who has true faith in God, what it can do inside of them. This is what Jesus invites you into, is that you can become freed to love because you experience a perfect love from him. That you can be freed to rest and trust because he's proven and demonstrated his care for you. It's that you can be freed to be generous and open-handed with what you have because your God provides for you. It's that you can be freed to view yourself in reality with humility because Jesus knows you and he loves you. It's that you can be freed to live in vulnerability because Jesus did exactly that for us. And so buckle up because here's what I want to do. I want to quickly reverse engineer this. You see, the very foundation and heart of what Jesus Jesus is after is that bottom thing. The very foundation is self-sacrificial love in place of self-centeredness. Remember, that's what the story comes out of, is the guy coming and asking Jesus, what's the, the summary of it all? What's the greatest commandment? What's the essence of Christianity? 
And Jesus said, love. Love in response to God's love for you, love that's directed towards God and other people around you. And so don't miss this. Don't miss the significance of this. The motivation in empty religion is fear and shame. It's driven by terrible insecurity. Whereas the motivation found in Jesus' good gospel is love. The tremendous, unmerited, undeserved, unending love of God for you and the amazing security that that creates for you and I. You see, this woman is demonstrating love for God and for her neighbor in this moment, in this gift. We've been discussing, discussing and disgusting both just how broken the religious system is, right? How broken this had become. And yet what she gave to was not a broken system. What she brought an offering to was God himself. It's an expression of her love and devotion to him that she comes and gives. And in doing so, she's giving to her fellow man because the free will offerings that were given in the temple would be divided for the sacrificial system and divided to the poor. So what she is freely giving of all that she has is she's giving it back to God and she's giving it to those who are in need. There's irony there, isn't it? That she's the person who seemingly in the story has the greatest of needs. But she seems to have this quiet confidence that her God will supply her needs. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 54 that'll pop up on the screen for you that I think her, the, the roots of her confidence were probably found in. In Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 4, it says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. It's beautiful. The world will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore for your maker. He's your husband. The woman approaches that offering with a quiet sense of confidence, seemingly that, that she can express a love that otherwise is unfathomable unless she's receiving a kind of love that leaves her so secure and so confident that she can give even without receiving, knowing that someone will care for her, her God, I believe. When we view this woman's gifts, although it was small, the smallest of all currency of that day is what it tells us she gave. Two of the smallest things, just giving pennies. We recognize that simultaneously what she's giving is massive because it says it's all that she has, which I'll tell you honestly leaves me a bit conflicted as I read this story for at least a couple of reasons. One being that she's giving to the place that should be providing for her. It was their responsibility to care for the widows and the poor. The other reason I feel conflicted when I read the story where she gives all that she has is that I just feel like I want to interrupt and be like, it's too much. It's just too much. It's too extravagant a gift, even though it's so small. The fact that it's all that she has, I feel like it's too much. It's the same conflict I feel when I read the story of Abraham, where Abraham is planning on offering his son Isaac. And I, I feel like, whoa, 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 this is too much. It's too extravagant. It's way over the top. But you remember by the end of the story, that it's precisely what Jesus does for them. And with this woman, I step up and I go, it's too much, it's way over the top, but I turn another page and it's exactly what Jesus will do for her and for me, is that he will give absolutely everything. So maybe this is fitting. Maybe there's something right here. 
you think, I, I think that the difference, the contrast here between empty religion and this transformation that takes place in someone's heart when they experience a relationship with God, when you and I, when we are connected with Jesus, is that we start to experience the incredible love of God for us. And what that does is it develops self-sacrificial love in each of us in place of our self-centeredness. It's our response to his great love for us. But the second byproduct it does, as, as it produces that love that, that's, that I'm experiencing his great love for me is that it leaves me with a quiet faith that allows me to release my sense of control. Because I'm so loved by him, I can follow him in faith knowing that I don't have to be in control any longer because I have a good God who loves me and promises to care for me and he will meet my needs. I trust him in place of that frantic desire that exists inside me for control. So picture the scene of the story we just read. The Mishnah tells us this ancient uh, rabbinic set of writings about 13 different chests that were around the court of the women on the Temple Mount. That's where Jesus finds himself now. Those 13 different chests are these big metal things that are referred to as trumpets. It's the Hebrew word shofar. Uh, a trumpet, it's shaped like a trumpet where it's narrow at the top and wide and open at the bottom. So you drop your coins in the top, they'd funnel down to the bottom, and they'd hit the base of this, this big metal drum, and it would erupt with noise as you dump in coin after coin, or if you're a rich person showing up and just pouring it in through the top, people would turn their heads and look, and Jesus seems caught up in the moment where he's joining with the people watching that's happening there on the court of the women, where he finds a seat and is watching as people, the rich people, come and dump so much. Do you understand the kind of noise that that would make, the heads that that would turn? And then a lonely widow comes in the most simple of clothing that the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself instantly realize she's a widow. They instantly can tell she's not hiding anything. She's in need of everything. She's a widow, a poor woman, without the means of changing that reality. And yet in that moment, the sound that emerged from that metal trumpet would have been so slight that it would not have turned a single head. Except for heaven itself, that turned to see the woman's faith and her love in that moment being displayed. Jesus saw it. My friends, the scriptures tell us that without blank, it's impossible to please him, right? Well, without dedication, right? That's what it's got to be. Well, no. Without compliance, it's impossible to please him, not at all. Without our money, without power, without perfection, it's impossible to please him. What does scripture say? It says, without your faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. God wants you to trust him. And what Jesus took note of was her trust in God. It's clear from this woman's gift that what Jesus marveled at was not how much she gave, but how she gave. She gave the two smallest pieces of currency in that era. 128 of these would equal a day's wage. If you average that out against the national average of average take-home pay this last year in North America, and I did the math, it would equal out to about seven minutes of work equaling $3.12. It was the last $3 she had, and she dumped all of it into the treasury. It doesn't sound like much because it isn't much until we remember it was everything she had. In fact, in verse 44, it says that all that she had, even her whole livelihood, it's the Greek word bios, from where we get our English word biology. It's saying that everything she was, 
everything she had, her very existence is what she gave that day to God. What she cast in, when she cast in those coins, she was throwing the whole of herself onto God and saying, I'm here and I'm yours. In this moment, Jesus is not knocking rich people. He's instead providing a contrast. He's contrasting those who are rich whose identity was their riches. They flaunted it so that others could see their wealth and opulence, and even they wanted others to see their giving as they poured it out publicly. He's contrasting the rich with the poor in a culture that believed that their poverty was proof of God's displeasure in them. He's contrasting the rich with those who have little, but what they have instead of God's displeasure is God's favor because their faith is great. That's what the story tells me. If you're a widow or you're a person in need, The story is really, really encouraging this morning. It's that God sees, knows, provides, and loves you. See, the transformation begins to take place in me as I receive and experience his incredible love for me. What it does is it produces a self-sacrificial love in place of my self-centeredness. What it does is it frees me to walk by faith rather than having to chase a sense of control, which liberates me then to live with an open hand and live with generosity in place of my greedy tendencies. Now, don't get nervous. This is not where I shake down the sheep for all of your money. This last year, we had 134 givers who gave to our church in support of what we do here and what we're partnering with all over the world. 44% of those who gave were consistent givers. 56 would maybe be classified more as tippers. They don't consistently give, but did give at times. I personally don't know actually who those people are on that list or what category they'd land in. I'm the secretary of our board because we're a nonprofit. We have a board of directors. The secretary of the board gave me that information. Um, If you've been here long, you know that we don't do pledges. We don't do fundraising. We don't even often tell you where the box is. We typically forget to do that. Um, I personally don't touch the money. I don't process the money. I don't even see the details of all that's given or who is giving or an end of the year, who's given what. Um, I have a friend, he visited our church a few times in the fall. Might be a bad sign, he's not here. But anyways, he came a few times, and after being here a few times, he said, I could tell something was missing after each time I was there, and I couldn't put my finger on it. After being there a third time, I realized this is the first church I've ever been to where I've been there multiple times, and I've never once heard anyone mention money at all. I'll tell you, I liked hearing that because I'm very sensitive to emotional and spiritual manipulation. There's another part of me, though, that realizes that that's dangerous. It's potentially dangerous. It's potentially a problem because God does care about our relationship with money because of what money can do to us. Money's more, especially in our culture today, is much more than green ink on little paper. Money is a placeholder for power and autonomy. It's often how we keep score. For many of us, it's a source of our identity. It's often in our cultural current moment that we find ourselves in, it's the source of our significance and security is found in our money. The problem is that the gospel is countercultural, and Jesus wants to be the source of your security and significance, not your money. This is why it's important. This is when we ask the question, well, why does God care so much about my money? Because your, your Bible does talk a lot about money. You need to know that he doesn't necessarily care about your money. He he cares so much about the condition of your heart and your willingness to exercise faith. The truth is that God and money both want your heart and that my attitude about my money may demonstrate which one actually has my heart. That's why it's talked about. So why does scripture encourage me to live and give generously 
Well, because living and giving generously, giving to God, it teaches me to put God first in my life and in my family. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23 says it this way, that the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. And it takes faith to put God first. It doesn't take as much faith to give God my leftovers. Like, hey, at the end of the month, we had a surplus. I'll give him part of that. There's faith in me saying right from the beginning, I don't know what this month will look like, but I'm committed to give this. There's faith in that, and that's what God is after, is faith. It puts God first in my life. The term tithing in the Bible, tithing is a Hebrew word that means a tenth. The term that's used for tithing is used in the Old Testament, talking about what God was asking his people to give, even commanding that they would give it. And if you if you total up all that God was asking them to give, it wasn't just a tenth because it was several different tithes and offerings. It equals some scholars say between 24 and 26 percent of their giving in the Old Testament went to then the temple and to provide for the poor and the needy and the refugee around them. Now, I don't, however, see that that commandment reiterated in the New Testament as a command. Hear me, that's hard for me, and not because I'm a pastor of a church who depends on people's giving. It's hard for me because I'm a follower of Jesus like many of you, and I want to reflect Jesus' heart of generosity, but I'd prefer Jesus just give me a rule because if I follow a rule and then I accomplish that rule, I know that I'm off the hook, and now I know I don't even need to think about being generous because I already gave my stuff, and I know another need came up, but I've already done what I need to do, and Jesus, I actually feel much better about myself because I did it. That's why I like the rule. It's because I feel like I sleep better and feel better about myself, but Jesus didn't give one. Instead, he only gave the example of extreme generosity. And that example is harder to follow than a written rule because each day and each person you interact with is an opportunity to slow down, pray, and be open to expressing generosity to them. So for the O'Keefe family, what it means is that we do give God our first at the first of every month. There's an auto withdrawal that takes place because we believe that God deserves the best and the first and because I know that if I don't give it first, then inevitably we'll run out of money before we give to God and we'll tell him we're sorry, but your portion also went away. And so we give to God first. Okay, now picture this. What does this look like in the Old Testament when God first does this? It looks like a family who when all of a sudden all the lambs are pregnant, when some of them are beginning to give birth, that the family runs out to the field to see the firstborn lamb of the year and they're all excited, kids and all. But dad's carrying a knife with him. Because dad's determined to obey God and honor him and give God the first of all that enters his household, of the grain and the wheat for sure, but also of his livestock. And so the dad will bring a knife because he'll kill the lamb and offer it as a burnt offering and sacrifice to God as a reminder for him that, and for his family that we put God first in our life. This would have been a traumatic and shocking experience for children and families. Like you thought your family traditions were weird. But year after year, the same thing over and over again. At some point in time, some kid would ask, Dad, why do you do this every year? And that's when the dad would respond and say, well, we haven't always been shepherds. We haven't always been landowners. We haven't always had livestock. We were slaves. But God intervened and rescued us. And that is why we as a family gladly give to God of our first fruits. In fact, that is a loose paraphrase of Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, that when your children come to you and say, why do you do this? That this is what you tell them. You tell them about God's faithfulness in delivering you out of bondage and slavery. And in my home, I want to have that same conversation, that same dialogue with my children. Thankfully, it will not be with a bloody knife. It'll just be a pen and a checkbook. It's much easier. 
less traumatic and I won't be paying for therapy afterwards. But I want to sit with my kids and tell them, we do this because we give to God of our first fruits because I was once a slave. I was once lost. But Jesus found me and rescued me and freed me at great cost to himself. And look, guys, at how God continues to provide for our family. That, Riley, Keegan, Declan, that's why we give. Because this is what God has done for us. He first gave for us. You see, making a choice to do this, to live in generosity, it teaches me to put God first in my family, but it also reminds me that God is good and provides for my family. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, it says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make your wealth. You see, I'm returning to God's what is already God's. There's something interesting you find in Scripture, and that's that God never says, give your tithe or your offering. He never says that. He says, bring your tithe and your offering to the storehouse. The difference between give and bring, think about this. It's because you cannot give what you don't own. And what scripture tells me is that God is the owner of everything and that I'm just a steward of what he entrusts to me. And so I don't give him what he already owns. I bring it back to him and say, God, you own everything that my family has as resources and I'm freely giving this to you and thank you that you provide for our family out of this. You see, while the world is using people to gain things and money and power, Followers of Jesus are meant to use those things, to steward those things, our money, our resources, our power, our influence, to win people, to love people. For the O'Keefe family, it means that Lindsay and I, we view our, our tithe and offering as returning to God what is already God's. When we're faithful to do that first, it causes us to view the whole of our income as being what God has entrusted us to steward. The remaining 90%, it's still his. It's his gift to meet our needs, but it's still his if he wants to use it to bless other people. What, what giving then gives me, well, think of it this way, what, what it gives me far outweighs really what I'm giving to God. What I'm giving to God is minimal compared to what it gives to me. It reminds me of God's faithful provision for our family, and that is a gift. You see, making a choice to live generously, it teaches me to put God first. It teaches me that God provides for my family. It also does this so. It generates a heart of gratitude in my life and family that wages war against materialism, which is the God of this age, absolutely. And I think that gratitude is the internal root system that blossoms as external generosity. And a heart that's full of gratitude towards God will produce a hand that's open with generosity towards other people. See, choosing generosity, it frees us from the snare of the love of money, which matters because more never equates to enough. It's an endless cat and mouse game. It's a bottomless pit. Please hear me say, giving to God is not buying favor with or favors from God. It's our response to him and an expression of love and faith in him. Be, be generous with all that God has entrusted you to steward. You're a sooner, steward, not an owner, so steward well. Your money, your time, your toilet paper, if God forbid we go backwards in time. Uh, it, it might be your emotional involvement in someone's life. It might be your home, the gift of hospitality that you would steward to allow other people into your home to feel the gift of rest and of belonging. We aren't just preparing for retirement, my friends. We are preparing for Jesus' eternal kingdom. 
And we want to see how we can use our resources to bring as many people into that experience as possible. This is why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You see, I think when God's at work in my life, it changes my heart from a place of self-centeredness to self-sacrificial love, from needing to feel in control to feeling like I can walk by faith, from living in a place of greed to feeling like I can open my hand in generosity. What it also does, though, is it allows me to live in humility in place of my pride. Rigidity is not the byproduct of the gospel. Humility is. The religious leaders only become more and more calloused as the story went on through the gospel, more and more pretentious, but the gospel allows us to see ourselves as we are and freely admit that this is what we are. Like this widow who's not hiding anything, we're broken and in need. We don't need to keep up appearances. Remember, the gospel tells me I'm far worse than I'd ever imagined, but simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. You see, all of us deal with brokenness in our world. Weakness is a part of all of our experiences. And the curse and brokenness we face was meant to drive each of us to our knees to recognize our humble need for a Savior. Instead of letting those things drive us to God, though, we run from them and bury them and hide them from others. Every single one of us, we're broken, we're damaged, we're cracked, we're imperfect. It's something all of humanity shares in common. But none of us want each other to see that. The world is so afraid of someone else recognizing that. Think of how God gifted weakness to people. Think about Jacob in the Old Testament where he has this amazing encounter with God where God gives him this promise that he's going to bless the world through him. And then God touches his hip and his hip comes out of place and it says for the rest of his life he walked with a limp. Think of how God blessed him with the weakness in that moment. Everyone saw him walk in weakness. Everyone saw him wobble. Everyone knew that it was a painful thing for him. But each step he took wasn't just a reminder of weakness. It was a reminder of God's promise to him that it really happened and that God would really be faithful. His weakness gave him more than it cost him because it made him remember the faithfulness of God and the encounter he had had with him. It's Paul in the New Testament who's praying again and again for some physical affirmity that he's dealing with. And when God doesn't take it from him, he said that he had learned to be okay with it because he learned that his strength was made perfect in Paul's weakness. Whatever it was that Paul was forced to endure, it made him feel so weak that it forced him to depend on God in a new way. What I'm telling you is that God gifted them with a weakness that gave them more than it cost them. Our world treats It treats weakness and failure as terminal. It's viewed as the end. God says oftentimes it's just the beginning. God says this wound is the conduit. It's the channel that I'll pour my life and love and power into and through. God says this is the the way that my greater strength is going to be experienced by you. God says because where you're weak, you will see the need for my strength, and then you'll see that I give it to you every time. And if that's actually true, then maybe some of my brokenness is by God's design and a part of his will for my life, and that maybe he won't completely just heal all of my brokenness and vulnerabilities because maybe, just maybe, they can serve a beautiful purpose allowing you and I to experience God's love and power and others to see that love and power at work. Some of my weaknesses as a person have become areas that I believe God is quite possibly more interested in leaving and using than healing and completely removing because they give me more than they cost me. 
We assume that because we suffer loss that we become less. Even by definition, think about that, loss. We suffer loss. We think that it takes something from us, but that's just not the case. Sorrow has a way of enlarging the heart. Loss does that for us. It reshapes our hearts. It expands our hearts. If all of that is true, then it allows me to live with some humility in place of my pride. It allows us to be a community that would live that way, willing to let other people see our brokenness. Do you see what it allows us to do is to live with vulnerability in place of pretense? You see, Jesus warned in the story, and this is how we wrap up, of the pretense, the sham, the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. He says, remember or notice their, their long flowing robes. It's speaking of how they'd move through the crowds, cocky and confident. They're peacocking as they move, swishing back and forth. They're long, verbose public prayers that are just for show. They're empty, they're shallow. It was empty, it was vain, all of it. Unfortunately for many of us, though, we know what this is like. Where we're dead inside, but we succumb to the pressure to put on a smile and voice a praise the Lord, God is good. Even when we just feel like we're sitting at the depths of a pit alone. We know what this is like. It's when our life and career, our family may be falling apart, but we don't feel like we can raise our hand and ask anyone for help because that's really not what we do here. That, that, that's not how we interact with each other. When it, It's when being vulnerable even feels like a betrayal of the strong persona you've worked so hard to sculpt. What a contrast, though, between the pretentious religious leaders and a vulnerable woman who threw her ethos, everything she had and was, on to God, so open, so beautiful, so very vulnerable in that moment. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus... Jesus has broken the power and penalty of our sin nature at the cross, but we have to break the destructive pattern that started in Eden. The destructive pattern is hide or be exposed. And the first humans chose to hide and cover up. And and I realize letting go of the facade of the strong image, it's a scary thing, but you need to hear me say that it's not going to take away the love that God or other people have for you. Some may even love you more because they see you as human once and for all. And I know this from experience, that you'll experience the love of God more because you're finally admitting just how deeply broken and in need of it you actually are. You see, the truth is, I don't always know if I really want to be vulnerable or not. I do, however, have this internal drive like many of you do, to find a place where I can be when I'm ready. And the church is meant to be that. My hope is that your home group is, is that gift for you because I believe that vulnerability is a part of God's transforming work in the lives of his people. Do you see the contrast that Jesus is staging for us? You can chase empty religion all you want. We're on the outside. Everybody's looking and going, wow, look, they seem to have it all together. And maybe from the outside, people look at your life and go, I see weakness and vulnerability. I see frailty and, and, and you, you're giving too much and you're doing, and they're unsettled. But the life that's transformed by the gospel and the power of Jesus' love is a freeing life. Jesus called it an abundant life. Life the way it was created and intended to be. Life that's freed from self-centeredness. That's freed from the pressure to feel in control. A life that's freed from the greed that drives me. A life that's freed from pride. It's freed from the pressure for pretense. 
choosing to embrace faith in Jesus, which is a response to his great love for me, embracing and experiencing that love will radically revolutionize your life and mine. My friends, that's what this passage is an invitation for. It's an invitation for us to slow down and reevaluate what have we made our relationship with God like? Is it just empty religion? Is it on the outside looks so very good, but on the inside is dead? Or is our relationship with Jesus, though perplexing maybe to some, is it so very freeing and life-giving? And if not, then this is the moment where we shift again. And so, Father, for us who have allowed this to become something that you never intended it to be, for those of us who maybe have allowed this to become just a broken, empty, religious experience, we pause and, Jesus, we repent. We repent of our self-righteousness. We repent of our pride. We repent of our self-centeredness. Jesus, we repent because we're not letting go of the things that you want to free us from. Jesus, we repent because we're trying to earn the love that you have freely given to us. And that pressure is crushing, and God, I know that pressure well. But I'm asking that you take that pressure from us Jesus, you invited us. Here's how Jesus said it. He said, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus, that's what we long for. So we respond to your invitation. Say, Jesus, then please, our hands are open. Our hearts are willing to humble themselves and repent. Jesus, we want to experience the life that sets us free. Life that's not encumbered by religious pressure, that lifts every one of those burdens off of us. And so, Jesus, we step your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.